Amen. Thank you, Eli. Thanks. Alex, I sure appreciate you doing that. And uh, I'd like you, if you would, you can turn in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 19. And you can back up to verse 21. Last time we were together, you can back up to that, uh, back up to that cartoon there, Will, would you? This is my weird sense of humor, but I kind of like this one for some reason. Go to the first slide, Will. <laughs> you get it? Never mind. All right. <clears throat> Last time we were together, we got a glimpse of the uh, system of Babylon, the system of man, the city of Babylon, and we saw as we we're approaching the end of this book, penned by John, that we are at the point of the total destruction of that system and of that city. Uh, that city, the capital of man's system. And in chapter 18, verse 21, what I'm going to do is just, just take a couple minutes and do a little bit of a review uh, so that we're back up to speed where we are in our study. But chapter 18, verse 21, we see at the beginning there, verse 21, a strong angel takes up a stone like a great millstone and throws it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Of course, we are at the end of the judgments and we have found that the world has been broken and continues to be broken more. And now we're getting to the point where this man's system is going to be overthrown. We're at the end of the end uh, times, right before the end of time and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But I think it's important that the angel informs us that this destruction of Babylon is not just the slow destruction occurring over seven years during the, uh, the tribulation judgments, but that it's an instantaneous destruction. It's uh, the speed and totality of that destruction and not just that slow one that's occurring during the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And then the angel reminds John of what else will be gone. Verse 22. Remember the city of Babylon, the man's system of Babylon has always been around in every, every kingdom. We've always seen this. We can see uh, this type of system, the system, a false system, a system of man, a system of uh, man's central types of thoughts. And this has always been around, but Babylon will be the epitome of that. And verse 22, at this destruction of Babylon at the end of time, the, uh, the, uh, at the end of the seven-year tribulation time, verse 22, the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpets uh, will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsmen of any kind will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. Verse 23. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and of the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Just in summary, there will not be any more music, no more craftsmen, no artwork, no production of foodstuffs, no power for anything, no natural resources available, no more marrying and giving in marriage. Uh, many are gathered for a great battle there around Jerusalem, but the rest of the world is just trying to survive. The end of time is very near. This destruction of Babylon and man's system, the actual city and the system itself, is going to take all of the support systems that are left out from under men. Verse 24 tells us how awful the system really was. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Man's system, which has always existed in some form or the other, and in particular this system during the seven-year tribulation, uh, she is destroyed because it's obvious that the system of man is, is responsible for the unspeakable atrocities against God's people. And so the Lord holds her responsible. And this system is responsible for all the mur murders, period. 
selfishness, self-centeredness, greed, all of those things, lust, all those things have been responsible for every murder. And man's system has always been behind that. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so Babylon epitomizes that system. It's destroyed completely, and with it, uh, judgment is brought down for all of those things. And then the party begins in heaven. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And that uh, word I told you is a timestamp, metahutos. It's after some things and before some things. Uh, it's after the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are finished, and Babylon is completely destroyed. And it is before the battle of Armageddon and the glorious appearing of Christ and the setting up of the millennial kingdom. Now, if you're following along on the back side of your notes, those are all filled in for you. You can see that if you missed that last time. All those answers are there for you. It is the transition, really. That timestamp is the transition from the tribulation to the millennial kingdom. And then there's some shouting that goes on in heaven, saying, verse 1, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bond slaves on her. Now, uh, we worship God by making clear who he is, what he's done, and what is happening here. There's this whole series of hallelujahs uh, that are shouted to the Lord. Uh, transliteration, we said, of two Hebrew words. And it just uh, it focuses all the attention on the Lord and gives reasons why. And in the entire New Testament, the word's only used four times. All the times are right here. And so I think it's significant that we look and see why they're praising the Lord. Verse 3, a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Uh, there's going to be always a reminder in the eternal kingdom of the rebellion. And uh, that's a little indication of that right there at the end of chapter, or verse 3. Verse 4, chapter 19, And the twenty-four elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. And the uh, 24 elders we've said before uh, represent the church. They agree, and they say, so let it be done. In verse 5, uh, And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bond slaves who fear him, the small and the great. So who's there? Who's there in, that, uh, in this assembly who are praising the Lord? Well, bond slaves. Uh, that is, of course, the uh, definition, uh, uh, the most clearest definition of uh, our relationship to Christ, the slave-master relationship. We talked about that maybe maybe three or four weeks ago as we looked through the book of Romans. Our purest description of our relationship to Christ is a bond slave. Uh, John MacArthur uh, came and spoke at Liberty about two weeks ago on a Friday convocation and spoke exactly about that, that translation of slave in the scriptures and uh, how that is a uh, a description of who we are. Many times we leave that off as we talk about our identity or if we think about our identity, but that is our purest identity. Bond slaves are there. Someone who has no rights, someone who has submitted themselves to the will of someone else, uh, that really defines who we are in uh, our relationship to Christ. Those who fear Him, those are character traits of all the truly born again. Uh, and no one else is there. Just those. Uh, just those who uh, fear Him, those who are bond slaves. So those that just believe God exists, all the other marginal people who uh, have not been impacted by His holiness, have come to church for one reason or another, have kind of connected themselves with uh, religion, if you will, those are, people are not there. It's only the ones who are defined as this bond-slave relationship. And I think it's interesting that in all the other ways that the Lord could have defined Christianity and defined the throng who are worshiping Him, He uses those, those who fear Him and those who are bond-slaves. So 
I think that's an important reminder of us that that is our identity. That's how we identify and interact with the Lord, uh, one of the ways we do that. And then the sound swells up, and then I heard verse 6, it says, something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters. And so it's a huge sound now, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And there's a collective finally, I think, after that, probably in that crowd. Finally, he reigns, like he always has uh, deserved to reign. Verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And just three portions of that relationship. I just love this imagery. Jesus picked his bride long ago on the cross, promised himself to her, uh, and told her to be ready and to remain pure. And the church was presented to the groom at the rapture, and now the ceremony is taking place with the supper. And so just marvelous pictures of who you are and how, uh, how uh, wonderful that relationship uh, you have with Christ we have as believers. Verse 8, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And we mentioned last time, uh, how do you want to make sure, uh, you can make sure you're clothed wonderfully for the ceremony. Uh, what are your clothing for the ceremony? The righteous acts of the saints. Isn't that great? What a beautiful word picture that is. The clothing for this wonderful ceremony of all the ages, this most marvelous of ceremony, the clothing of those who attend really is the righteous acts of the saints. And so you want to be wonderfully clothed, be doing lots of those. Verse 9, then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now it's talking about some guests. Who are these people? Well, it's not the church, is it? Because the church is the bride. That's not one of the invited guests. So it's not the church. Uh, These are people who came to faith before the church. These are people who are tribulation martyrs. These are the folks who get invited to this ceremony. And then John mistakenly worships the angel, the last part of verse 9, and gets reproved for it in verse 10. And then the angel says, For the testimony of Jesus is... The spirit of prophecy. Everything that was ever said about the kingdom of God, past and present, future, has always really been talking about the reality of whom? Jesus. That's right. It's the reality of Jesus is really the essence of everything uh, that is prophecy. Everything about the kingdom. Everything that uh, told about the gospel. Everything that told about God's uh, wonderful relationship to man really is uh, the testimony of Jesus himself. And these, this language here is just overwhelming. And as you read through this, I, can, I, can, I know that you can sense that, that it's uh, so important, the things that are being said here, and so worthy then to just allow us to just worship Him in your spirit. And that's kind of as I was reviewing my notes, just doing that to the Lord, just saying, you are so worthy of this. This is just this is what we long for. When you come to redemption, when you come to faith, you begin to understand the price that was paid and how marvelous this whole relationship through salvation is to... Uh, uh, we as children, then we long for this to take place. And so when we hear that it's going to for sure take place, and maybe in the not-too-distant future, it's just worthy of just worship of, of Him. We're so excited about that. Everyone's getting ready for heaven. Everyone's receiving clothes to go into the kingdom. And it's going to be the consummation of the marriage. Heaven is all astir. And everybody's looking around excited. And we're going to see Jesus like we've longed to see Him in His glorious appearing. And that's your first stop on your notes. In the glorious appearing of Christ. Go ahead and go to the next one, William, if you would. Revelation 19.11. Look there with me in your copy. And I saw 
heaven, and that's just the word for the exalted expanse above us. We've seen it before. The exalted expanse above us. I saw heaven open. It's made to open is actually the word. Made to open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Let's stop right there. His name is Faithful. That's the word pistos. He is uh, the person who, uh, who is uh, the one who is faithful and he is uh, the one who is faithful to discharge duties is really how that was used. The one who has always been faithful to discharge the duties that were given. And his other name is True. And uh, that's uh, opposite of what uh, is fictitious. That is someone who uh, is not counterfeit, and that's so appropriate that that's the name that's given as he appears, right? Because the world has been dominated over the last seven years by everything counterfeit, right? By a counterfeit kingdom, by a counterfeit Christ, by a counterfeit prophet, everything counterfeit. And then here he comes, and he comes on his white horse, and he is called faithful, and he is called true. And those are just amazing uh, words and names to give to who is this? This is Christ, and we're going to see that in just a moment. He's actually named, and we understand that's who he is. But when he came the first time, remember, he came in a stable. He worked as a carpenter. He rode a donkey's colt into Jerusalem, and to fulfill all righteousness, he submitted to death. And there's a significant difference here, and it just as a just a footnote, because we've commented on this as we've gone through uh, the, our study in Revelation, on the difference between the rapture verses, 1 Thessalonians 4 and John 14, and this verse in particular as it speaks about Christ's glorious return. There are significant differences there. And as we talk about judgment, we understand he's coming to judge. We see he's coming to wage war. That's exactly what he said is going to happen here in verse 1 or verse 11 of chapter 19. But when he comes as a, in the rapture, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 and John 14, there isn't mention of judgment. Two different specific times as he comes to catch his church away, he doesn't touch the earth. He, he calls his uh, servants up to be with him, calls the church away. But here, as we get into these verses and we see the glorious appearing of Christ, now we see the judgment connected with his coming. So we understand that the language is important and it's talking about two specific different times. And when he comes this time, of course, no judgment then when he caught the church away. Now judgment. Uh, then saints rose to meet him because he called and they came. The church was raptured. And now they come with him. So significant differences in the passages, and these are important uh, cues for us to help us understand these things that we've understood about the rapture and about this glorious appearing. Now, he is on a white horse. Uh, he is faithful and true, just like he said. He would return in power. And shock of shocks, he's going to judge and he's going to make war. Uh, no more meek and lowly Jesus. No more, you know, God's love. He'd never divide right from wrong. Everything's going to be okay. Kind of, you know, man be pan be looking at Jesus. He's just, you know, Jesus is love and that's all he ever is and all of that. You know what? God, he's coming. Uh, the end of God's uh, long suffering has come. He's coming to judge and he's coming to make war. And Scripture talks a lot about this and tells us that this is on its way. Psalm 7, verse 9. Uh, Will, if you'd put that up, as I think as soon as we've got that copy down, I think we do. Psalm 7, verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. That's always the call of the righteous, isn't it? Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Uh, in my weekly time when I pray, spend in prayer, uh, depending on what's going on in our government, I'm always praying for that. You know, I'm praying that the Lord will uh, allow us to escape out from under the wicked who make uh, wickedness into law and constantly asking the Lord for judgment on those who, who devise wicked laws and then pass them down so many are led to destruction. 
that he'll bring his own uh, judgment on their heads. And uh, that's what we pray for. It's, it's, an, it's appropriate because that's how the scriptures teach us uh, to think. We want the, wicked to, the, the works of the wicked, wicked to come to an end. But establish righteousness, it says. For right, the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. Verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation. How often? Every day. He has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he'll sharpen his sword. He's bent his bow and made it ready. Verse 13. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he, that's men, uh, travail with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. Verse 15. He's dug a pit and hallowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he's made. Speaking of men now. His mischief will return upon his own head. And his violence will descend upon his own pate. And that, that's my prayer. That's, I'm sure that as yours is as well. That's what we want to see. We're just tired of wickedness ruling. We're tired of people being led astray. Uh, on Friday, and just as a side note, our, our, our house voted to defund Planned Parenthood. I sent out a little thing on, a little thing on uh, Facebook where you could connect to that. I was so thrilled with that. I was glad that we had some people in our government who understood how awful that has been all this time. And it took this long for somebody to say, why are we funding this? You know, 375,000 abortions funded each year. Aren't you tired of that? I'm tired of that. I'm tired of people making laws that say that's okay. And so it's okay to have a little righteous indignation, as long as it's righteous and it's not focused on yourself. Okay? But this is what's going to happen. Christ is coming in His glorious appearing, and He's going to judge, and He's going to make war. And that's okay. It's, it's, on the one hand, we're glad the Lord's vindicated. On the other hand, we're consumed with sorrow because it means the death of people. People for whom uh, the ransom was paid who would not accept. Right Now, look at verse 12, Revelation chapter 19. His eyes are a flame of fire. Let's back up verse 1. Uh, verse, one. Uh, verse 11, rather. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now, verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He has power. So this picture is very clear for us. He has power. He has authority. Many crowns sit on his head. He's in, he's in charge of everything. He's king of kings. Everyone answers to him. He has a kingdom. He's a crowned ruler. And there's a name written on him that even glorified saints don't know. We're going to get to know our Lord, our Master Christ, by a name we don't know yet. That's going to be amazing, isn't it? Because we know quite a few names of him now. But we're going to get to see a new name. He's wonderful. And it just gets better. Verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And this is not from the last battle of Armageddon. This is from his battle with sin on our behalf. And his name is called, here it is, the Word of God. So who are we talking about? No question, right? We're talking about Jesus. That is his name. One of the many that we know him by just kind of cross-reference and kind of make it even richer and our foundation we're standing on more full. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of how much? All things, right? And through whom also He made the world. He is the radiance of His glory, that's God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he wears that robe. 
Uh, we recognize that. We understand that. And I really think the world will understand that pretty clearly, too. And there are some people with him. Let's look at verse uh, 14. He has a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Verse 14. The, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. They're clothed in white linen, white and clean. Recognize that apparel? That's your apparel. That's my apparel. We're there with him. It does not describe us as having weapons, but just as part of the procession that proceeds out of heaven with the Lord, which separates it from the other scriptures we understand where we're called up to be with the Lord. Scripture says he will rule with him, uh, that we will rule with him when the battle's over. So these people coming, it's just the church, it's tribulation martyrs, Old Testament saints. But until it is, until that battle is over and we get to rule, he and his angels are going to do the work. And uh, to, this is, is him coming to set up his kingdom. Uh, that finale as he comes to Armageddon and all his glory to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, there's a couple places that describe that. describes the angels helping uh, for us. So hold your finger right here, and I'm going to give you a few places to turn that can help uh, illustrate that. Matthew chapter 13, would you turn there? Verse 37. We'll start right there reading. Matthew 13, 37. Hold your finger here in Revelation. We will be right back to it. But I just uh, love it. Scripture just kind of explains the Scripture. It makes it so much more rich for us to read these. And this is really how you would go about, uh, I would encourage you to go about the reading through of a, of a passage as you study and meditate on the Word daily. There would be some cross-references. Read them uh, and, and enrich your understanding uh, as you study and meditate on the Word of God. This is one of the ways we do that, Matthew 13, 37. And he said... Uh, this is Jesus speaking here. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Verse 38, And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. Verse 39, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are whom? The angels. Verse 40, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels. This is the exact time we're talking about. Okay, So as Jesus is teaching, he's teaching them a parable, of course, a, a sort of uh, wheat and tares, but he then explains and moves into an end of the age teaching. And of course, as we understand the book of Revelation, we look back now on Matthew, we can see that there are wonderful similarities here. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, verse 42, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45. It's valuable, right? This kingdom is valuable more than anything else. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. It's worth everything you give up for. See? He's laying weight to the importance of all of this. Verse 46. 47, rather. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. That's this age we're talking about right now as we walk through the book of Revelation. 
The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We won't turn there, but the Revelation chapter 14 shows the angels' assistance as well. So, very common uh, theme throughout Scripture that the angels will uh, do this with the Lord. Uh, Israel itself was judged um, as Babylon came and uh, carried away uh, the southern kingdom captive. We have a wonderful word picture that shows us that the angels actually did uh, that work, that they used, uh, the Lord used Babylon to accomplish the captivity. The angels did the work of the judgment. Now, let's look at verse 15 of Revelation 19. You can flip back there if you would. Verse 14 says, And his armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, this is Jesus now again, speaking of him, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. Verse 16, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's going to judge and slay men with his word. It'll have power to take physical life. And I really think, as you see this word picture, as it's uh, described for you here, the scene at the end of the age as the Lord comes forth, uh, the word now proclaims that people are dead in their sins, right? We understand that to be true, that they are already dead. Uh, but I really think that as he comes, that Christ's own word will slay uh, the wicked. What actually has been his spoken word in the word that we read before us will actually be what occurs as he comes. That proclaims people are dead in their sin or alive under Christ, and that will be the reality of the folks who are there at his glorious appearing. And it appears that his words will actually literally accomplish uh, the slaying. So he has a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. That is his word. We understand what his word says, and that is what slays those who are wicked. He has come to carry out the wrath of God on sin. Time of God's forbearance, his patience, his kindness are over. And the horror of Armageddon is recorded for us here again uh, in verses 17 and following. The battle is joined and the angel makes an announcement. I'll look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice. Now he's not standing, it's a, once again a word picture, we've seen it before, right? He's standing at the zenith. So a place where the, the noonday sun would be, that's where the angel's standing. He's got everybody's attention. He's going to make an announcement saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. It's a little gruesome, isn't it? Because we know what he's talking about. Verse 18, So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men. So not just the mighty, not just the noble, not just the warriors who are there, but all the wicked, both free men and slaves, small and great. Those who accomplish something in life, those who haven't accomplished much, uh, the only thing that separates them here into this category is that they have not received salvation. So they are those who are classified as the wicked, and uh, the angel says, come, you're going to dine. He proclaims that God will be victorious, and he says that even before the battle's even joined, that God's going to be victorious. Because I think even though the Antichrist, the false prophet, the kings of the earth think it's going to be a battle, they're assembling for the battle, and other than the fighting that's going to be going on uh, temporarily in Jerusalem right before Jesus comes, it's not really a battle. They really won't be able to resist Jesus. It's just overwhelming victory before they even begin to fight. And as hard as this is to say it here, really this is really the carrying out of the death sentence on all of those who oppose God and his Christ. That's really what's going on. 
There's no real battle that's going to go on as if there was some other outcome besides Christ being victorious. Scripture really indicates that this is just overwhelming. The angel announces before it's even joined. Jesus is on his way. He's got the, the host of heaven with him, including you and I. If you're redeemed, you'll be there. And he says that the battle uh, it won't even be a battle. This is really just come and dine. The battle's already over. It's the carrying out of a death sentence on all those who oppose God and his Christ. It's going to include, verse 18 says, all men, free men, slaves, small and great, everybody who is not, who has opposed themselves to God and his Christ. Now, once again, we can cross-reference a little bit, just kind of uh, firm up our foundation that we stand on, that we're talking about the same thing. Is this consistent in that scripture? Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 17. We can put that up on the, on the screen. have a few there in a row. As for you, son of man, Thus saith the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and every beast of the field, assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you, as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. And once again, the prophet hears the same thing. He understands it at the same time period. He didn't understand it at that point. But now that we have the completed word of God, we can go back and see the light turned on for us. Matthew 24, 27 as the disciples were asking when the end of the age would be and when the time of his coming would be, and Jesus goes through and gives them uh, kind of a rundown of that. Verse 27 says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Just two real illustrations. First of all, he won't be coming in secret, just like lightning that flashes from the east and the west, and everybody there sees it. Uh, that's how uh, obvious it's going to be what's going on. People will know this is happening. It's not going to be some remote thing like happens now. You may be at work and something's going on in the Middle East. There's a couple of shots are fired or a bomb goes off or a rocket gets fired into uh, somewhere, a mosque somewhere or, or into Jerusalem, into the downtown Jerusalem somewhere. And we don't find out about it until we click on MSNBC you know, in the evening. Uh, when Christ comes and his glory is appearing, everybody's going to know. It's going to be obvious. That's what Matthew's point here. Uh, as he's relaying this to us. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, which just implies that there's going to be a great slaughter, obviously, and a great battle, which is not really a battle of all, but just judgment. And uh, there's going to be this great dinner for the birds. Now, look at verse 19, Revelation 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, as if they could ever overcome. The sky opens up, as it were, and Christ comes out of it. And Matthew tells us that it's obvious to everyone uh, on the face of the earth what's going on, but they're there to make war. There's been some skirmish uh, fighting in Jerusalem. And uh, here's what you need to realize uh, with this verse when you read it. This day has been predicted so many times. So many of the writers of Scripture who talk about this. The first and second advents of Christ. And remember, as you read through the Old Testament, and we've said this before, sometimes it's hard to differentiate when... If they're talking about the first advent of Christ or if they're talking about the second advent. But you just kind of read them together and that's why, you know, grinding through Isaiah and, and uh, Ezekiel, sometimes it's difficult. You're thinking, okay, when is this judgment going to take place? Is this judgment on Egypt already taking place? Is there a further judgment that's going to occur? And that's some of the fun of reading through those. But as we understand now with the New Testament and the light that's gone on for us, we understand some of the things they were speaking of, which they didn't and longed to look into. So, it's, it's been foretold many times. Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Matthew, and the Apostle Paul all talk about this. And Jesus himself talked about it uh, this day and the days following this day when Jesus will judge all who did not believe in Matthew 25, 31. 
And so we've seen this over and over, this consistent theme of Scripture. Now let's see what happens to the two guys who spent the last seven years recorded for us here in Revelation, boasting about their strength and their power and giving themselves names. This is what I like that didn't really belong to them. Okay, They've called themselves names, and uh, I love uh, Lewis and Narnia and uh, how uh, the Narnians get upset that names have been given to the wrong people and he just tells them to be quiet. Soon all names will be set correctly and the correct, the pe- correct people will have the correct names. And I, I like that because that's exactly what's happening here. People who said that they were the Christ really weren't the Christ and they didn't deserve that name and they won't get it anymore. But uh, verse 20, it says, The beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. You remember this, we looked at this. By which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. One of the first things Christ does as he slays with the word of his mouth is he grabs these two who have been boasting about their own names and who they are and what they can do and have deceived many, many millions of people. He's going to take them and they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus takes these guys, he puts them alive there in the lake of fire. And they lead the way, really, for millions of people who refuse to believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness uh, through his name. And as I told you before, we are going to see them again, a thousand years later, still in torment as the rest of those who have died without Christ are judged and cast there for torment. And that's their final destination, beloved, with a body that's going to be prepared for that eternity. The scripture clearly teaches us that everyone will be resurrected. Everybody. And everyone is going to receive a body made for eternity. Some will receive a body fit for the glory of the kingdom forever and to enjoy God and His holiness forever. And some will receive a body that is going to be fit for eternity uh, in the lake of fire. It's a very severe day. Just a couple of cross-references as we have, we're really out of time. Matthew 13, uh, verse 40 and 42. Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They'll gather up out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness. And he will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, very severe. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where, verse 48, for the third time, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. An eternal punishment separated from the Lord and His presence forever, separated from physical life, uh, on the earth forever. Very severe day. Luke 3.17 His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So it seems absurd for those who teach that there's not a literal hell there's no literal fire there's no literal presence there when scripture continues to repeat it over and over in so many different ways and so many stories that we understand from the scriptures teach this uh, it is a reality. Unfortunately, it has to be there. Uh, it is not something we rejoice in. It isn't what we want to see happen to people. It certainly should be our motivation to share the good news of Christ. But it is a very severe day. It is a very important day. And we understand that the Lord is vindicated, uh, that sin is judged. Verse 21, Revelation 19. 
And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So this uh, speaking of his word, his actual word actually does the slaying. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. All those men who were part of the army will be killed. And that is the winepress of the fierceness of God's wrath. And of course, as we read in chapter 14, verse 20, we understand as they both speak about the same day, the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. A very, very severe day. A day that we look forward to because we see the presence of the Lord in all his glory. A day that we're glad for, that we've prayed for. A day where the Lord's kingdom is set up. And isn't that what Jesus taught his disciples they wanted to, when they wanted to pray? Your kingdom come and your will, what? On earth, because that's already a reality in heaven. See? And that's exactly what's going to go on. And we're going to read much more next time we get into our, our study. And also keep in mind, if you've got questions about what we've studied, in the next several weeks, we'll put together those questions and we'll do a Q&A session on Sunday night. So if there's things that popped into your mind tonight, if you just email them to me, you text them to me, or uh, send them to me just on a piece of paper, I'd be glad to deal with those questions. We've covered a lot of ground tonight. I thought it was important, though, because it was one thought that we get to this point before we closed out. And the Lord is going to, his angels will judge men. The outcome will be the same uh, for both. It's both right and it is terrible. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God, isn't it? It is, if you haven't received the forgiveness of sin that comes through his son. <clears throat> really, Hebrews 10, I just jotted this down right before I came in. Verse 26 through 31, that's what I just quoted to you, verse 31. Verse 26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And as we think about the context of Hebrews, those who have understood the knowledge of truth but haven't received that, haven't confessed their sin, haven't repented, but stand in that place where they understand the good news, they understand what's been presented, they have knowledge, but it, uh, knowledge that hasn't produced uh, saving faith because they haven't submitted. Verse 27, There's nothing left but terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people and then verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But as we looked at this morning, if you're redeemed, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. And so the glories of heaven await you, beloved, and death is a transitionary time of promotion. But for those who do not know the Lord and have rejected his Christ, a terrible day, a very severe day. And the scripture tells us plainly exactly what's going to come so that there's no question about the outcome. Let's bow in a word of prayer and be dismissed. Lord, we thank you today for the marvel of your word. We thank you for just being reminded of how worthy you are of praise and glory, of the names that were given your son, faithful and true as he comes. We look forward to the day when he is in authority, when he rules, when he's set things right, when he's caused all the wrong to cease, those who've committed uh, tremendous error and wickedness who've rejected the saving knowledge of your son 
that have made wickedness into law and have created so much sorrow and suffering have led many to the slaughter that you will avenge. You'll take care of all that. It is sweet and bitter both, Lord. We, we know that your, your own prophets have said that. We understand it so clearly tonight. It's sweet on the one hand where we, we recognize your authority and we so long to see Christ uh, ruling and crowned and recognized as who he really is. We're so overwhelmed, though, with grief that it's a very severe day. So, Lord, help us to do what we can do. Be faithful witnesses of your, of your good news. Help us not to be those uh, types of servants, those slaves who fall asleep and sit around idly doing nothing. Help us to be about your kingdom and your will. Help us to be modeling obedience in our own lives. Help us to be a clear testimony through our voices of what you've done for us. For all your rich blessing on us, we give you thanks. And we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.